Would you pray with me as we begin this part of our worship time? Father, I pray that you would awaken now, wherever it's not awake, our heart to treasure Christ as our supreme value. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on us to grant love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. I pray that the devil would be restrained, that light would shine into our hearts, and that Christ would be seen and savored for who he really is. And I pray that our ministries would be strengthened from the smallest church to the largest church to the nearest church to the farthest church. Oh, make your shepherds mighty in the word, I pray. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the point this morning was that God is passionate for his glory and that he is not an egomaniac in being self-exalting. And among the reasons why he's not is that he is seeking our praise not because he won't be fully God until he gets it, but we won't be fully glad until we give it. Which means that his pursuit of our praise is love. It's the definition of divine love. That God does whatever it takes, including the death of his son, to enable us to make much of him forever by enjoying him forever. So, you don't ever have to choose between glorifying God and being happy if your happiness is in God. But I'm going to go a step farther now tonight and say that God isn't just loving in exalting himself for our enjoyment so that our, our joy rises as his glory is lifted up. He's also set up the universe in a way that his glory rises and is manifest and magnified in my delighting in it. So my delight is, is not just a response to his glory, seeing his glory, but my delight in his glory is an essential way that his glory is magnified, that he is glorified. So the banner that flies over my life, church ministry, is God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. If that's true, and I have to defend it biblically, the implications are simply staggering for your people and for your ministry. And we want to look at some of those tonight. Um, let me start by telling you what the mission statement of our church is and one of the great benefits of being at a church for 31 years is that the church's ethos and mindset and the pastor's ethos and mindset merge so that the church's mission statements written on the wall of our sanctuary and my personal mission statement are the same. 
The reason I'm on the planet and the reason this church exists in our mindset is this. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. That's our mission statement that's on the wall and on the paper that comes out of our church. And it might help if I just say a sentence about each of those components. We exist, I exist to spread something. Meaning my existence is defined in this direction. I exist this way. My joy is not complete in this way, but this way. Comes down, goes out. And until it kind of does that, it's not full. If God showed himself to me and then put me in a bottle and threw me in the ocean, I wouldn't be happy. God has ordained that human happiness grow by drawing others into it. So I exist to spread a passion. Why would you define your mission statement with the word passion? You could use the biblical word zeal. I'd be fine with that word. Zeal. I exist to spread zeal. Not just right theology. And I will put the highest premium you can almost imagine tomorrow on right theology. But right now, we're on passion. This is the feel Christ talk. So, a joyful people is what I'm after. Let the nations be glad. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. <laughs> what else should be our, our mission? To bring gladness to the nations in God. For the supremacy of God. Passion for the supremacy of God. God's greatness, God's glory, God's power, God's wonder, God's full array of attributes is what we're about. We want to be, to be known and, and treasured for all that he is. In all things. Spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things. God is supreme in all things. There's nobody in your church who has a job where God should not be supreme. If God can't be supreme in their job, they should quit. And our job is to help them do it. Make him supreme as a postal worker. A housewife, nurse, teacher. For the joy of all peoples. And the S on the end of peoples is to make it global and to make it missiological. There are thousands of people groups in the world who have no self-sustaining church. This is why missions is not over and won't be over till Jesus comes. Let the nations be glad. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So we exist for the nations, for the globe, for those who've come to us, 50,000 Somalis across the street from our church, all of the Muslim. That didn't exist 10 years ago. Things change. <laughs> Ministry better. Through Jesus Christ. None of that happens except through the gracious work of the dying and the rising of our Lord Jesus. So that just a taste of how a mission statement gets crafted growing up out of the things that I'm, I'm trying to say here. So this talk is feel Christ and... I want to give four clarifying introductory comments. Number one, a definition of feeling or emotion or affection. I'm using all those interchangeably. 
Sometimes I'll say the affections, some I'll say the emotions, sometimes I'll say the feelings. That, that cluster of, of stuff is what this talk is about. And here's what I mean. I mean spiritual affections, not bodily humors or reactions. And by spiritual, I mean Holy Spirit awakened, Holy Spirit sustained and non-physical. So wobbly knees, fluttering eyelashes, sweaty palms are not what I'm talking about. And the reason that I say they are non-physical is because, number one, God has them, and he has no body. I mean things like joy. Now, not all of these God has. I'll list some that he does and some that he doesn't. Joy, fear, gratitude, desire, hate, anger, tenderheartedness, peace, loneliness, sorrow, regret, shame, hope. That's what I mean by affections or emotions or feelings. And, and, and the world has these, and I'm not talking about that. I don't give a rip what the world has. I want what the Holy Spirit makes. I was in the, in the, in the car on the way over here, actually just walking in, it just clobbered me afresh. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. God makes it. God Almighty creates it. Isn't that amazing? So the world doesn't have that. That's what I'm calling it spiritual. I mean the New Testament word spiritual over against carnal. Holy Spirit awakened. Holy Spirit sustained. Aimed at the glory of God. Those are the kinds of feelings. And all those feelings that I mention here are possible to be awakened by the Holy Spirit. Including shame. Sorrow. There's a sorrow that leads to life and a sorrow that leads to death. There's a carnal sorrow and a spiritual sorrow. And the other reason I say it's not physical, besides that God has many of these, is that you will have them after you die. Really have them. And your body's going to be in the ground. So you're going to go to be with Jesus, which is far better. Why is it far better? You're going to be really happy really happy. I mean, this happiness will look like sadness compared to that happiness. And you won't have a body. There'll be no trembling. There'll be no eyelashes fluttering. There'll be no stomach butterflies. Just joy and awe and wonder and gratitude and all this cluster of non-physical spiritual affections that are just pervasive in the Bible. So that's the first clarification. I'm talking about, when I talk about feelings and emotions and uh, affections, I mean spiritual ones, not physical ones, not synonymous with the world experiences, but something overlapping, similar to, but awakened by the Holy Spirit. Second clarification. Why do I emphasize passion or joy or affections over right doctrine and right thinking. That is, why do I say um, they are more ultimate? Which I do say. I think right doctrine serves right affections. Theology serves doxology. Doxology, praising from the heart, God is ultimate thinking rightly about him is penultimate and serves him. Both massively important. These two talks, this one and the next one, are my attempt to get it in the right balance. So tonight I'm putting first because tomorrow serves this one. Could have done it the other way, 
but it seemed right to put them in this order. Here's what Jesus says. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what's the truth for? Freedom from what? Sin in the context. What is sin? Very important question. It's not the movement of the body in a sexual sin or in stealing a bank from a bank like this. The movement I arm taking that money. That that muscular event, that's not sin. This is sin. Coveting, wanting. It's the heart that turns an action into sin. And when you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free from those driving emotions that are making you so unhappy that you've got to steal, and you've got to lie, and you've got to cheat, and you've got to boast. So, truth serves heart change. And heart change is about these massively powerful feelings that we have. Even people that say they don't have them big have them big. They're just squished. And they come out in ways that they can't recognize as emotions. We'd be good if they owned up to what they need. You will know the truth. And the truth will transform your affections. Beholding his glory, we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Right theology serves right affections. Doxology grows out of right theology. So that's the second clarification. Third clarification. Why do you emphasize passion or joy or affections or emotions over behavior. First, that question was over thinking, over behavior. And this is tricky. I don't and I do. I don't and I do because, let me see if I can just share you why, why I want to say yes and no. Um, Jesus said, make the tree good and the fruit will be good. And the fruit is behavior. It's visible. I see your life is different. So there, the good tree, the transformed me, deep down at the roots of my being, is giving rise to visible, tasteable fruit. And so behavior seems to be more ultimate. Yeah. Um, out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks. Speaking is behavior. And so that seems to be the outcome of this, and therefore the outcome is more ultimate. God is after the outcome. Or God aims to be publicly, visibly known as glorious. This is why there's going to be a judgment according to works at the end of the age. He doesn't need it. Goodness gracious, he knows our hearts. But he's going to do a public judgment according to works. Why? Because he wants himself to be publicly vindicated before the devils and the angels. That's my child. He was really born again. Here's the evidences from his life. Public evidences. They don't justify him. They don't cause his regeneration. They're just public demonstrations. That's my boy. God doesn't want us to be seek. Like, I have all the emotions and nobody knows it. I have all the regeneration. Nobody knows it. He means to be a public God, a demonstrative God, so that people know. So behavior at one level is the goal. It is. However, here's the problem. If I were to say that, it could be so misleading because... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So right now, it is conceivable that all of my talk is a sham. I'm a charlatan. 
I'm a fake. And all this God talk is a cover for money or some hidden thing I'm doing here in Sydney or whatever. That's possible. And if that were true, behavior would not be the goal. (laughs) God wouldn't give a rip about what I'm doing right now. My heart would be totally wrong, and this would not be fruit. So I'm I'm wary of making behavior, pure and simple, the goal. Or what about this? Um, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, though I have... uh, uh, all prophecy and all mysteries and have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love. I'm nothing though I give away all that I have and deliver my body to be burned but have not love. I'm nothing. That's awesome. You can actually give your body to be burned and give all your possessions away and have not love. So behavior cannot be the goal. At least pure and simple. Or 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he's made up his own mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a... Well, what about a non-cheerful giver? Really generous one in your church. How's God feel about that? He's not pleased. So I can't say giving is the goal. Cheerful giving is the goal. So maybe the way to say it on this, I'm supposed to be clarifying something here, and it may be making it worse, I I don't know. But I I am willing to say then that to to try to get these two sets of texts together, which is what what my life is all about, getting texts together, that that if, if behavior embodies and is carried by a right heart, It is the goal. If it is manifesting, if it is exuding and displaying a valuing of God in my heart, the behavior is the goal. But I I can never say behavior, pure and simple, this outward actions, pure and simple, is the goal, which is why I put the stress so heavily on our affections and our heart. That's clarification number three, I hope. Clarification number four. Um, how do the affections relate to the glory of God? And my answer that I gave earlier, and now I'll say it and give the biblical argument for it, is they relate like this. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Philippians chapter 1. And if you don't, just listen. Listen carefully. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians 1. Now, here's what I'm after. I want a textual warrant. I want a biblical warrant so that you can stand on the Bible, not on what I say, For the truth that God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him. That being satisfied in God is an essential way by which God is made to look good in the world. That's what I'm after. And the best one I know of is in Philippians 1, 20 and 21. A very precious text to me. I preached on it when I came to my church 31 years ago and... Maybe I'll go out with this one too if I get to choose going out. As it is my eager expectation and hope. So Paul is now telling me one of his tremendous, I would say his most ultimate hopes and expectations that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored or your translation might say magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So there is his passion. I want Christ to be magnified, 
to be made to look magnificent in my body by the way I use my body in life and the way my body dies. Now the question is, in Paul's mind, how would Christ be made to look magnificent in the way he lives and dies? And we only have time for one of these halves. And I think the death half is the one that's most clear. So let me read the text and leave out the the life half. And notice that in verse 21, he's continuing that pair. At the end of verse 20, he says, by life or death. And in verse 21, he says, for me to live, that corresponds to life, is Christ. And to die, that corresponds to death, is gain. Now we're going to read this, leaving out the life half. Watch for the logic. This is an illustration of what I meant about structures of biblical language showing structures of reality. My eager expectation and hope is that Christ will be honored or magnified, shown to be great and magnificent in my body by death for to me to die is gain. Now, that's a sermon. The four there is a sermon. It's changed my whole way of looking at the world, that little word for. God, I want to die in a way that makes you look magnificent. Would you help me? Now, and then he says, here's how. Because to me to die is gain. And if you ask, why is it gain? The answer is in verse 23. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, that is to die, and be with Christ. So dying is gain because he gets more of Christ. There's going to be more intimacy with Christ, more immediacy of Christ, a clearer sight of Christ, and that's gain. And gain is good. Gain is satisfying. Gain is pleasing. Gain is happy. And that's my argument. Get it? No, you don't probably get it yet. Let me paraphrase. My passion, I'm paraphrasing Paul, is that Christ be made and shown to be magnificent in my death. And the way it will happen is that when I die, I will count it gain. Or, as I come to die and I see I lose my wife, I lose my children, I lose my ministry, I lose my grandchildren, I lose my retirement plan, and all I get is Jesus. And looking out at that catastrophic loss, I say, gain. Now, who looks good at that moment? Jesus, he looks magnificent to the nurses around your bed in the hospital, doesn't he? If you're lying there and tubes come out of every hole in your body and you're struggling for your last breath and your family's around you singing and God enables you to smile and say, I tell you, that moment, Christ is magnified because he's satisfying your soul. You're losing everything you've known except one thing, him, and being so satisfied in him that you can call it gain while you lose that. That's a glory. That's that's my argument. This is the way it works. The Bible says, I'm going to argue, I'll lay my life down for this. I would stake my life on this. The Bible says Christ is shown to be more magnificent in you when you are more satisfied in him. That's biblical. 
And I'd base it all right there on Philippians 1, 20, 21, and 23. So I'm done arguing for the thesis, and now I'm going to work out implications because they are massive. If you get persuaded by the Bible, not by me, but by the Bible, that God exalts himself not just in order to be seen by me and enjoyed by me, but he has set up the universe in such a way that my joy in him is precisely what magnifies him. If that persuades you, changes everything about life and ministry. So here, here's what we'll do. Um, I'm going to give you um, some implications for your people then implication for pastoral work, then implication for preaching, and maybe if we have time, implication for the wider evangelical challenges in the church. Implications are everywhere of this. So, number one, some implications for your people. So, if you're a pastor, I'm a pastor, I was persuaded by this in 1979. Everything opened up to me in the year 68. I said 79. I'm in 69. 68 to to 71. Everything changed in my worldview. And I saw these things and I've been trying to work them out and live them out ever since. So implication for your people. The pursuit of maximum joy... And the pursuit of the glory of God are never at odds. I can't tell you how many people have been liberated by that statement. The pursuit of your maximum joy and your living for the glory of God are never at odds. And here's the reason. You show me the path of life. This is Psalm 1611. You show me the path of life. In your presence, O God, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, I ask you, I'll ask anybody on the planet, can you improve upon full and forever? Nobody can improve upon full and forever. The world offers me, let's just say it offers me 89 years of 99% happiness. I'm going to say, no, thank you, because my God offers me 100% forever. The issue for our people is not that their problem is that they're seeking their happiness. They're seeking it in the wrong place. And if we try to beat it out of them by duty and sacrifice, we lose because we're being unbiblical. Your people should pursue maximum joy all the time without fail. Every minute of their lives, even if it kills them, which it may because maximum joy for many of you should be in Afghanistan and Iraq and China and northern India. That's where God has the highest peaks of joy for you. And it will cost you your life. If anybody hears me, walks out of here and says, Oh, John Piper says you just be happy all the time. Get it any way you want. You're willfully sinning. This is clear. This is clear. I'm making this clear. This is on tape. Right? (laughs) This will cost you your life. To pursue your maximum joy in God will mean tremendous eye-gouging and hand-cutting. Because those sights will kill you. And you don't want to die. You want to be happy. So cut off your hand and gouge out your eye. This is not cheap. 
This is a costly lifestyle. One of the most gratifying things in my life, as many times as I've been misunderstood, is that hundreds and hundreds of missionaries are on the field because they've just been blown away by the all-sufficiency of God to satisfy their souls and they can let goods and kindred go and they can leave mom and dad and they can hate their own life as it were. So this is not cheap. So maybe it would be helpful to take a few minutes and give a little more biblical foundation for this. Um, so let me run through some arguments, biblical. Just give you, just give you texts, and I'll try not to linger over them too long because we could stay all night on each one of these. So we're still on my first implication, the implication for your people that they should seek maximum joy all the time in God, even if it costs them their lives. And we'll talk about the implications for your pastoral role in a few minutes. But to persuade your people of that or persuade you of that, let's, let's give a few more arguments. Here's, here, one, the Bible commands your people to be happy. It is not optional. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Philippians 4.4. 4. Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 32.11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. It's simply not an option to be unhappy. And of course we're unhappy. And depressed. Good night, you're not alone. Because it's obvious that every pastor is depressed. Sometime, my goodness, I get so depressed sometimes I can't remember my children's names. I want to sit down in the grass between the garage and the house. You don't feel anything. That's not a good situation. I'm not commending that. That's just reality. So don't hear me as perfectionistic, like, oh, this can happen. I'm saying it ought to. That's why I need the cross. I love the cross because I'm sad so often. And I shouldn't be. I've got a million reasons not to be downcast today, and I'm downcast. And so Jesus have mercy upon me. Number two, the nature of faith teaches the pers- that we should pursue our satisfaction all the time. What, how do you define the heart and essence of faith? Let me give you two texts. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, based on that verse, how would you define faith? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, comes to me. There's a a metaphor, a geographic metaphor of movement. Comes to me, will not hunger. And then the parallel, he who believes. Now, you got believe in the place of come. So you got, this is the reality, that's the image. Believing will not, will never thirst. So both of those, no hunger, no thirst, trace back to coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus. So here's my definition of believing. Believing in Jesus, savingly, is a coming to him for the stilling of my soul's thirst and the satisfaction of my soul's hunger. And if that doesn't happen, I'm not saved. If I'm going to money for the stilling of my thirst and my hunger, or sex, or pride, or the praise of man, if I'm using some other thing besides Jesus to still this ache, I don't have faith. It really makes a big difference whether you define faith solely in terms of believing facts, which you can't do because the devil believes all of them, or whether you define faith in terms of the affectional embrace of Jesus as our supreme treasure because he's Savior and Lord. So in my context anyway, in Minneapolis, I always say, come to Christ. Come. You need a Savior. You need a guide. You need a treasure. 
Embrace him as your savior. Embrace him as your Lord. Embrace him as the supreme treasure of your life. And if they say, I'll take the first two, not the third, I say, you got it. You haven't got it yet. You haven't been born again. To be born again is to have our values turned upside down so that we cherish. These affectional words are super important. We cherish, we embrace, we love, we delight in, we're satisfied by Jesus because he's so infinitely valuable. That is a component. It's not the whole, the component of saving faith. Or another text in that regard is Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. If you have faith, you come to God for reward. If you don't come to him for reward, you don't have faith. What's the reward? It isn't money. I hate the prosperity gospel. It's Christ. Or better, it's all that God is for us in Christ. That's our reward. Saving faith comes to him for that. Our people need to hear this. So easily we present the gospel in terms of duties they have to do, even faith. And faith is a drinking at a fountain. Another text. The nature of evil teaches us that our people need to pursue satisfaction in God all the time. What is evil? Okay, here's Jeremiah's or God's definition of evil. He can define evil in different ways and and be biblical, but here's one biblical way, really important way. This is uh, Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. For my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I love that definition of evil. Evil is tasting the fountain of life, the all-satisfying river of God's delights and saying, "Eh, no thank you. Turning to the desert and digging and digging and sucking and sucking on the sand until we're dead and go to hell. And calling it pleasure. That's the world. Our job is to look at people and say, what are you doing that for? Look, this evil. Evil is forsaking your joy and trying to dig for it where it cannot be found. Don't do that. Why would you commit suicide? Why would you die? Come and live. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why would you spend your money on that which is not gain? That's the way Isaiah invited people, don't you? You do, I'm sure you do. Because that's what the good news is. It's good news. Stop getting your pleasure where it can't be found. And whatever little thing you think you're finding, it's over in 80 years and your history in hell. Don't give it away. Oh, how we need to plead with people because evil is the forsaking of joy. Well... I think I better stop with those arguments. We got some other points to look at. But I've got a whole bunch more. They're in books all over the place. Um, Here's my second implication. The first implication was your people should never choose between glorifying God and being happy. 
It's a sin to choose between glorifying God and being happy. Because happiness is to be found in the glory of God and his glory is shown to be magnificent when we're most satisfied in it. And therefore, 24-7, we're helping our people pursue happiness, which leads me now to the second implication, the pastoral role. First, with regard to you. What about you? What about your soul? Okay, the question I was asked earlier about how do you stay alive Turn with me to Hebrews 13. I'm going to show you, you. You've probably seen this, but I love it and love to talk about it, so I want to talk about it some more here. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Sounds like it's addressed to the people, and it is, but it's at, at the end, it's about you, the pastor. Obey your leaders, talking to the people. This is Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. A few texts that keep me awake more than that one. Because I've got a lot of souls to give an account for. Who will have to give an account? Let them do this with joy. Whoa. Really? Let's read that again. Let, let the pastors, let the leaders do their ministry with joy and not with groaning. For... Now, this four here is massively important. This structural, this four, that would be of no advantage to you. Now, if you love your people, do you want them to get no advantage from your ministry? No. Well, According to this text, how do they get no advantage from your ministry? Answer, by your groaning in the ministry. And how do they get advantage in the ministry? By your joy in the ministry. Which means, you can't love your people if you don't pursue your joy. This is really good news. I mean, how many jobs do you go and apply for and they say, no, if you're not happy in this job, you can't be of any service here. Joy is the key to your people's health. There are a lot of sick churches in the world because they're led by sick pastors who don't have any joy in the work. They're gutting it out day after day and their people look and they say, this is not a... This is not a happy place to be. Following Jesus is a real drag. That's not a good advertisement for his glory. So this text is, an, is you know, I've, I've said to myself and to others, the news that God is glorified in you when you're satisfied in, and your people are loved when you're satisfied in God is both liberating and devastating. It's liberating because I suddenly get permission to seek as much happiness as I can possibly seek in serving my people in God's power. It's devastating because I fail so regularly. So regularly. My wife, I have to live with my wife who sees me so down so often. And I sometimes wonder, can Noel even believe in Jesus when I preach this message and she sees me at home? That's what I mean by devastating. But there it is. It's not my voice. It's Hebrews. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So that's implication number two. We pastors must fight for joy as though our people's lives depend on it. And I mean our joy. Now, implication number three is for our preaching. 2 Corinthians one twenty four. How did Paul state his goal 
as an apostle. And he stated it like this, 2 Corinthians 1.24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. The apostolic goal was a worker with them, not over them, but with them, for their joy. So I just think you ought to write that over every sermon. For their joy. For their joy. And, and believe me, that does not mean you preach feel-good sermons. You preach deep, solid, glorious theologies of suffering so that their joy weathers the cancer and the dead baby. We get a lot of people that come to our church from thin churches. Churches that have a lot of hype and a lot of emotion and no substance because substance won't sustain joy in pain and everybody's in pain. <laughs> How in the world we convince ourselves in some churches that you can have kind of a rah-rah Christianity when everybody dies. I mean, the history is just a conveyor belt of corpses. I mean, I mean, don't you don't you look at the news every day? Twenty-eight people blown up yesterday in the Sunni mosque in Iraq. Fifty million people a year die in this world. The only way to help them be happy is to give them rock-solid theology under their feet for the day of their trial. And it will be tomorrow. So, I hope that you will embrace Paul's goal. I work with you for your joy. And I want you to have a joy that will rejoice in tribulation because tribulation works patience and patience works approvedness and approvedness works hope and hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit oh I think about that all the time weep with those who weep they're always weeping which means the pastor's always weeping Rejoice with those who rejoice. My people are always rejoicing. I mean, all you have to have is 15 people for some to be happy and some to be sad. Which means you're going to be happy and sad all the time, simultaneously. The pastorate is a glorious miracle. I really mean that. And I'll say more about it maybe later. So that's implication number three, that... We are workers with our people for their joy. And I'll close now with this last one that I said maybe there would be time for. So we'll make a few more minutes, just maybe three or four. Um, the wider challenges in the evangelical church. And um, I wrote this, this note here. When did I first write this? Um, I wrote it for Bonn, Germany and Samara, Russia. That's where I first delivered these. So I created this um, without you in mind. So we'll see whether it's relevant. Um, uh, well, here's what I'm asking in closing. Are there issues out there, stresses in the evangelical church that would be ameliorated made less bad by embracing this truth that the pursuit of our joy for God's glory is an essential part of life. Just making that prominent, making it real are, are the things that would be helped in the bigger picture. And, 
And I think there are two sets of errors. One related to right thinking, one related to right doing. Let me just describe them to you. Here's an error that I see. If right thinking is drifting away from this truth that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him, what can happen and does happen is that it moves towards dead orthodoxy. So a kind of dried up, dotting of the I's and crossing the T's of precisely right theology. And as far as others are concerned, it looks lifeless. A reaction to that in our churches is yuck and anti-intellectualism. So here's what, here's what intellect produces. Look at that. Huh, yuck. Who would want that? And so the intellect is obviously unhelpful. And so now we will go over here and make a church or find a church where they don't, they don't think much. But man, is there life there? Now, both of those are terrible. And where do they come from? I'm arguing that one of the places, it's not, I'm not oversimplifying, one of the places they came from is a neglect of this truth. That God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Where that is cultivated, right thinking produces life and affections for God. People see and say, I see life there. Yeah, they think hard. Yeah, there's a hairy theology there, but look. They're alive. They love each other and they love Jesus and it's manifest, which means that you don't lose as many people going over here to anti-intellectualism. In fact, it goes the other way. And come back from anti-intellectualism into substance. So that's the first pair, namely dead orthodoxy and anti-intellectualism or the excesses of charismania. And not everything in the charismatic world is excessive or wrong, but there are excesses. So there are excesses of intellectualism over here and excesses of emotionalism over here. And I'm just saying we might avoid both of these sad things if we embraced fully what I've been trying to say about God being most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Here's the last one. This, that was right thinking and what becomes when it gets disconnected. Now right doing. Right doing. There's a lot of stress on doing in churches. I mean, social action, churches and evangelism and missions and do. And uh, keep your nose clean in the process. What happens when that passion for good deeds, right doing, gets disconnected from God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him? Here, here the issue is not, I'm going to think right, forget that feeling stuff. Now I'm going to do right, forget that feeling stuff. What happens is legalism. And there's different kinds of legalism. One kind is moral performance that it starts to drift into, I will impress people and God with the good things I do. Another kind is a kind of pragmatism that you might associate with the seeker-sensitive things where it's just kind of plastic after a while because everything's done, 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 done in order to fit, 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 fit. And where did that come from? What, where did that kind of legal orientation on doing disconnected come from? And it came from somebody who lost a grip on the place of the affections and the place of the heart under and in the doing. And what is the reaction to this? Emergent. Antinomianism. I think that's almost history now. Um, but you, you get the flavor. So where legalism of various sorts starts to look, and you can be a legalistic do-gooder, you can be a legalistic soldier, you can be a legalistic evangelist, legalistic missionary, whatever, wherever deeds are being disconnected from sweet, deep, heart, humble, passionate motives of delight in Jesus, that's just skin. And the reaction, people see that and say, bleh, plastic, empty, and, and then they light candles and draw on the wall. 
it, that won't last. It, it, it can't last. Or, in a more sophisticated way, they move towards a kind of theology that really does become antinomianism in its full-blown historical sense. So that's my little attempt to say that God being most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him is not only good for our people's soul, it's not only good for a pastor's soul, it, it could, it just could, I, I don't know, I don't want to overstate it, it could bless the evangelical church by, by protecting us from these pairs of extremes that tend to give us so much grief around the world. So tomorrow, what we try to do, Lord willing, is to balance this heavy emphasis upon the affections with a equally heavy emphasis on the mind and thinking underneath it. So, Father, I pray that you would be the one who helps all of us sort this out. How easy it is for us to make mistakes here is to get wrong in our focuses or our emphases. We want to be biblically proportioned. And so you apply this, Lord. You apply this by your spirit and help people get it biblically right. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.